Birth, the Forgotten Feminist Issue podcast was founded by me, Alicia Staines, maternal health lobbyist, birth nerd and mother of five. I share evidence-based research along with reflections from women who've birthed, researchers, fellow lobbyists and other maternal health professionals. I want to change the culture around birth and maternal health care and I want to get women inspired to embrace birth and motherhood in the feminist movements. If you find value in the work I do and you'd like to connect further, please consider becoming a Patreon of this podcast by heading to patreon.com forward slash Alicia Staines. Welcome to episode seven of Birth the Forgotten Feminist Issue. Today with me, I have Janet Fraser, mother, poet, historian. She's been the national convener of the Australian Home Birth Network, Joyous Birth, since 2004. She writes about feminism, history, human rights, birth and parenting, and presents at conferences on these, as well as stillbirth and obstetric violence. Janet is on the management committee of the Feminist Legal Clinic and Maternal Scholars Australia. She co-founded the New South Wales Women's Guild in 2019. Her book, Born Still, A Memoir of Grief, was published this year by the Australian publishers Spinifex Press. She has work coming out in the Melbourne University Journal um, next year and has been published by the Hunter Writers Centre, Grief Collection and other journals. She also writes at Patreon where she talks about women's studies and revolution at Dispatches from the Matriarchy, and you can catch her on Facebook and Twitter. Such an awesome bio. Thank you for joining me today. <laughs> Let's start Hi, off. Hi, Alicia. Thank you for having me. Oh, I've been um, really looking forward to this interview for some time now. Let's start oh. off because I know you've covered it, okay. and I've been a huge fan of yours online for some time. Why is birth the forgotten feminist issue? Well, we need to go back in history to look at that. Um, part of it uh, was uh, what happened between the first and second waves of uh, feminist activism in the European world and in our world, the Western world. And it's to do with the idea that originally all women were, was a walking womb. So all that we were good for was mothering. And men who were in the public sphere didn't mother. So in order to move into the public sphere, we needed to separate ourselves from the mothering and the gestating and the nurturing of children in order to be on a par with the definition of citizen, which was clearly male. So we uh, have had a lot of activism around uh, ways that we can support women to move into paid work. We've had a lot of activism activism around abortion, so avoiding motherhood, which is awesome and great. And, you know, I have worked a lot on pro-choice campaign, don't get me wrong. But our basic definition of the political actor, the political citizen in our worlds, is that of the male and the male body. So in order for us to move into that sphere, we felt that we should separate ourselves out from mothering uh, in order to be just as good as men. So, of course, what happens is that the citizen model doesn't work for women. And you really need to get Dr Petra Buskins on to talk about that because she has written an amazing book about it. 
Um, and so then what we're left with is this idea that, that you know, the can-have-it-all model. So we can mother and we can also be the CEO. But actually, the definition of citizen and worker still in Australia is that of the man who has the wife at home, who is the one who takes the sick days, who organises the appointments, who births the babies, but then goes back into paid work really soon so that she can keep holding her place in our economy, which we all worship. Um, and so as we move through all of that, you can see that the logical outcome of that is depoliticising actions like birth, because we almost want to forget the embarrassing fact that we have to do that. Um, I know that you've made similar quotes and you might have to retell me exactly what it is, but basically like birth is a reflection of society's view of women. Can you talk me through that? I know there's the word distillation in it, but I can't remember exactly the way you phrased it, but I thought it was amazing. Uh, well, I've been saying variations of that for quite a long time now. I think uh, that when women menstruate, when women birth, uh, it is the undeniable proof that we are the not men. We are definitely, absolutely displaying those qualities which make us other from the normative form in a patriarchy, which is male. So men are normal, women are abnormal. So when we perform those actions with our bodies, which mark us different from that normative form, the male, how we are treated at that time is the best possible indicator of what our female status is worth in that society. Talking about female and male, um, you've been very vocal, which I think is great because there is this movement, um, some would call it almost a cult, to actually erase women in this space. Um, it, it's very politicised, but for me, there's a lot of internalised misogyny when we start using terms um, that are under the guise of in, in being inclusive of like, you know, birthing parent, birther, gestator, chest feeder, those type of terms. Can you talk to me about why it's important that we keep these terms and not erase women further? Well, I think uh, some of that harks back to what I was saying about um, the political necessity to keep uh, capitalist patriarchy, the economy, grinding along is to separate us from our bodies, from our normal bodily functions and from our babies. Um, and the genderist ideology, uh, which is not a grassroots movement, it is a well-funded, well-organised international movement, which a lot of people have done really good research on. So you can look that up. Um, what happens when we fail to notice the sex of um, the birthing people? Well, do you think that gives us a way to describe the sexism and the oppression that we experience because of our female bodies? No, you can't actually describe sexism if you can't describe sex, right? So the pathologising of boys and girls who reject 
sex stereotyping, which is you know, something that feminists have rejected for a long, long time, um, you know, hundreds of years. Uh, the pathologising of those children and the denial that sex matters is endangering women's capacity to talk about birth, to talk about abortion. You know, in my state, we have finally decriminalised abortion, but now we have a law in which not one woman appears. So it's the only law on the books that solely, utterly, totally applies to girls and women and there's not a woman in the bill. So for 119 years, women died, went to prison, um, went through court actions, had unwanted pregnancies. And yet, in order for that now to be legal for us to access abortion, the price was our erasure. And I feel completely gutted by this, the, the dishonour of the memory of the women who died. There's a woman in my family, there's a woman in everybody's family, if you look hard enough. The disrespect and dishonouring of the memory of the dead women really disturbs me. But ultimately, we cannot describe the ways in which we are kept from public life and from decision-making if we can't talk about the fact that sexism exists because of our biology in a patriarchy. Yeah, thank you. I think you've articulated it like perfectly. I want you, I want you to talk about um, or talk to um, obstetric violence and birth trauma because this is something that you've been talking about for a long time. But also, and I don't mind if rather than general discussion, if you actually um, do tell your story about your births. Um, but it would be good to have that I guess, definition of obstetric violence, because a lot of listeners might not have either heard of it or understand what it is and, and how it pertains to women, um, because it is a women's issue. It's a reflection of the violence that we see against women in society. Mm, absolutely. I think uh, the point that you're making there is, is really important. Um, uh, originally, uh, we referred to this as birth trauma. And then over time, um, and particularly in Latin American countries, I think uh, Venezuela was the first, Argentina, Venezuela, I think it's Venezuela, uh, was the first to actually criminalise this thing called obstetric violence. So as we have male violence, which follows distinct patterns and is a cultural phenomenon of men's violence towards women, largely in the home, uh, we also have this cultural product which is violence in childbirth against women now people have written and discussed this for many years you know you can look back at i think it was hence goer's work about the the violence in in the maternity wards in the 1950s um, and it is different now because we have different in interventions which women can be forced to experience but the basic principle still exists and the principle is that Women um, are not asked permission. Women are not giving fulsome consent. You know, the idea that we might have choice. Choice is a, is a bit of a concept that needs to be unpacked in women's lives. Um, if somebody does something to you while you are birthing to which you have not explicitly consented, this is violence. In the same way as if a person 
in the car park of the hospital put their fingers in your vagina without your consent. If they do it in the delivery room, it is not better. It is still a crime. But because we have culturally normalised this idea and we have normalised the idea that women pose a danger to their babies and therefore doctors and midwives have the right to do things to us without our consent, we can't get people charged. Yeah, it's been sanctioned for a long time and um, we see Absolutely. trauma rates as one in three women, yeah. um, PTSD, which in your book, um, I know that you discuss um, PTSD and how you were treated or, or basically not treated. You know, it was totally ignored. You were gas lit by several um, old use care providers in inverted commas um, because I think we need to actually get away from that term care because in a lot of situations... Because it's not, you know, like in a, in a salute to Mary Daly, who often played around with language in order to reveal what might be really going on. A lot of us always used to put care provider, but with an S in brackets at the beginning, you know, scare provider. So, um, yeah, I, I think it's the idea that, that women are all suffering from um, postnatal depression is a part of this paradigm. So yes, uh, it is likely to cause distress and depression to try and mother in a completely anti-mother world, but the concentration on that stuff means that we absolutely fail to look at the violence and the coercion, and coercion is profound and massive and trained into people who work in hospitals. So you know, we don't look at that. We simply blame all these faulty women who just can't mother properly. And that was certainly your experience on a few different um, angles, I guess, particularly after. So I want to move into your third birth, which was um, a stillbirth, and you'd chosen to birth at home. Um, in some circles, um, you had called it like family birth. Um, people like listeners might know it because it's often how it appears in the media as being described as a free birth, which is there's no medical attendance, but women have um, full bodily autonomy. And in the vast majority of, of circumstances um, and instances, women are very well researched and um, know exactly why they've chosen that option. Do you mind um, taking us through that? Sure. Uh, well, my story is that I had two goes at hiring midwives and both ended really poorly. Um, and so I thought, you know, I've tried this twice. Like after the first one, I was prepared to go, okay, well, I was inexperienced. It was a bad day. I'll just hire a different midwife who's highly recommended. Uh, she was in another city from me because we were moving in the middle of my pregnancy hands up home birthers who renovate and move house. Uh, and that didn't go well either. She dumped me at 37 weeks and I woke up in labour a few days later with my daughter who's 14 now. She's just over there. Um, and so I free birthed my second child. And then with my third baby, I was like, you know, catch me once, okay, catch me twice. All right, three times, I don't think so. So this was going to be my birth where I finally got the birth that I have worked for all women to have 
where you push out your baby surrounded by people who love you and then you climb into bed and you eat Vegemite toast. Uh, and that's not what happened because for reasons unknown, she died of a massive brain hemorrhage sometime during labour probably. Um, she was not born alive. She was definitely born dead. When she was born, her skull was actually slightly malformed um, because the pressure of the massive hemorrhage on the inside, you could see from the outside. Um, but, you know, I hoped and um, atheist prayed that this wasn't the case. So we did CPR and called an ambulance and then it was all set in motion from there. And my life has never been the same. So, um, yeah, I, I tried really hard to use the system as it existed. I'm highly educated, I'm white, I'm middle class, and I couldn't navigate the system successfully. So, yeah. Did you have something else you were asking me there? I think it's gone out of my brain. It was um, around that uh, mistreatment, but I, I think, um, I know we're both getting teary because it's so, um, so shit, the system and what it does to women. Um, yeah. Also, like you've had such a big loss. But I want you to talk us through how that undignified and disrespectful care, it didn't, it didn't actually finish when you birthed your third child at all. It actually probably was... Um, it's almost the way you describe it is almost like they were trying to punish you. Oh, um, absolutely. From the, from the get-go. It was, was very clearly yeah. punishment. Yeah, from um, just, you know, um, not, like, even not offering you clothing or, and, you know, like, you, you um, having your baby taken away and being treated like a criminal from the outset. Yeah, I, you know, it was a heady time in home birth politics and... Um, you knew if you had a stillbirth that your midwife would likely be raked over the coals in a really unpleasant and terrible way at that time in the middle of our activism to try and save home birth, which failed dismally. Um, but I was a woman and uh, the wrong kind of woman, the disobedient kind, and so I had to be punished. Um, on the plus side, I can reassure everybody that uh, no other free birth has been through what I have. Um, it was very specific. It was very uh, much aimed at me. Um, when we called an ambulance, we got um, three ambulances, five police cars and a forensic bus before she was even declared dead in the hospital. So, uh, you know, I, I know other women who've had stillbirths at home and I've never, <laughs> never seen that happen to anybody. Um, so, yeah, they, the punishment was really profound. And, you know, a lot of women who have had a stillbirth, whether in the hospital or at home, uh, there's discussion around whether or not you are going to choose a post-mortem for your baby. In about 50% of cases, we don't know why babies die. Uh, they appear to be perfectly normal. They simply weren't fit to be earthside. Um, and sadly, this is how evolution and, and birth and reproduction work. You know, your pregnancy can end at any moment while you're pregnant. It's just that we uh, allot different interpretations to what that means throughout a pregnancy. And a stillbirth, of course, 
because you've just spent nine, ten months growing that baby or less if your baby is premature. Um, and it, it, there's something very profound and visceral about holding the product of your bones and breath and blood who's not moving. So you have poured your essence, yourself, into this baby and then they don't breathe and they don't move. And it's a profound shock to the self. So um, I did end up going to hospital. I was not allowed to go in the ambulance with her. I was taken in another ambulance. I was eventually got to the hospital uh, and um, they checked me over. I was fine. And then I couldn't walk um, and was in a wheelchair and ended up in emergency where there's all those um, cubicles and the like, you know, with curtains. And this very nice doctor who was clearly quite freaked out um, got down and looked me in the face and she said, I'm so sorry, your baby appears to have died from SIDS. Uh, and I said, I think you'll find she was stillborn. And she said, oh, yes, yes. Anyway, she was very sweet and kind, as were all the people in the hospital. Um, and then I was allowed to have my baby back. And she was covered with all of the tubes and, uh, you know, the various things that they put into a baby when they're trying to bring them back. And I wasn't allowed to remove them because now my baby was suddenly evidence. And so there I was, um, still not really dressed and in a cubicle surrounded by curtains with my partner. And I could see the police because they could see me. Um, the medical staff were very kind to me at that point, which was lovely. And then because my baby was evidence, she was taken. Uh, and I didn't see her again until I saw her in the morgue the following day. And the police questioned me straight away. So they took my baby and put her in a box of some kind to take her to the morgue in Glebe. And then I was taken up to the ward, uh, the postnatal ward, where I could hear all the babies crying which is generally considered something we don't do to women who've had a stillbirth nowadays. That's why we have rooms in hospitals for women who've had stillbirths to be with their babies. But my baby was taken because I was a home birther and should be punished. Uh, the, the midwife who greeted me on the ward said, where's the baby? Like, you know, she was shocked that they had taken her because we just don't do that to mothers anymore because we know the psychological harm that that creates. So then my support person was taken and she was questioned by the police. The police came and stood over me in the bed and threatened me and told me that um, she was going to be cut. There would be a post-mortem. And when I said, like, hold up, you know, wait a minute, please. Could you at least wait for me to talk to her father about this? Because I thought, oh, you know, poor dad, he's, you know, suddenly going to have all this sprung on him as well. And it's moving really quickly. And they said, well, you know, that would be perverting the course of justice if you did that. You, you don't have a right to say no to that. So it all kind of went downhill from there, really. So that what, was what my... What were they implying, Janet? What were they implying that you've done something to your baby? I think so. Um, you know, my, my home was a crime scene, which is often what happens if you have a stillbirth at home. My home was a crime scene. They searched it. They ransacked it. 
Um, they videoed a lot of my house. They videoed the room that I'd given birth in, which I was then questioned about in court. Um, they alleged all kinds of bizarre things, like I'd hidden my placenta. Now, I'd birthed my placenta as the ambulance officers walked into the room, and then I got out of the pool, not clutching my placenta, because who does, right? Um, but apparently, I tried to hide my placenta by leaving it where I'd birthed it. Um, you know, there, there was no win for me in any of this. Everything I did was wrong and it, it really didn't matter what I would have done. You know, the, the lead ambulance officer, when he came in the room, I was holding my baby at that point because we'd been doing CPR on her. So he came in and I handed my baby to him. So his witness statement to police said that I appear to have a personality disorder because I'd handed my baby to him. I, what are the options? If I'd held on to her, I would have been a crazy who refused to give medical help to her baby, right? You know, when the person you think is more qualified and you're praying is going to bring your child to breathe, which you haven't been able to do yourself, walks in the room, you give them the baby. Because that's what I would have done if my child was older and had fallen off a ladder or something, you know, like... I just can't win. I, I was always wrong. It's very liberating, though, to find out that whatever you do, you're wrong. So you should just do what you need to do. Yeah, um, I, I'm in continued amazement of you and the work that you produce after all the trauma and all the grief. I think you're absolutely amazing. Can you give us a brief rundown um, how that disrespect and the punishment continued right into court? Because I've read... Um, some of your book and I, I just I could not believe how I guess inhumane people could be to a grieving mother and it just I, I, I have I have no other idea of where in death someone would be treated so poorly after a loss so significant yeah it's uh, it's you know what I call the Lindy Chamberlain effect in the book um, you know, Lindy Chamberlain was persecuted as well um, and considered not to be performing grief adequately. So, you know, if, if she had cried publicly, she would probably have been a drama queen who was bunging it on. Uh, but like me, um, when under extreme threat like that, uh, I tend to become quite stoic really um you know it it's it's like a, a continued psychic threat to the self to have police lawyers all lined up against you um because of a normal physiological event which had it happened 100 years earlier or probably even 10 years earlier or in a hospital nobody would pay any attention to whatsoever so criminalizing the normal uh, and pathologizing the woman who experiences that, um, you know, this is this is patriarchy. This is what it does. It's it's still painful to me to remember um, the the kind of unkindness which was extended to me at that time, and I understand the mechanisms whereby that occurs. I understand that uh, birth, death uppity women, um, you know, these are a, a heady mix. 
And so people, particularly perhaps people who are in hierarchies where the normal is valued, so ambulance officers, police, some lawyers, because some lawyers are awesome, um, these, these people were able to take their judgment of me out upon me. Uh, you know, the, the senior investigating officer made it very clear all along that he thought I was some kind of weird-ass psycho. Um, and, you know, having to do a police interview two weeks after my baby had died. Um, and he was asking me the most bizarre non-questions that really brought home how police should not be involved in a normal physiological event. Uh, you know, his idea of a question was, um, most women in Australia hire an obstetrician and give birth in the hospital, but you don't. And I, you know, I was sitting there for a minute thinking, what do I do with that? <laughs> like, A, no, they don't. Um, and B, no, I don't. So I just said, no, because that's the truth. But it was very clear that he'd flipped through a pamphlet or, you know, had a chat with the wife over brekkie that morning. Um, so I guess I know what model of care is employed in his family, right? So, yeah, it's, it, it, it was very deeply traumatising, but also my feminist critique has saved my life, really. Uh, I was suicidal after the birth rape I experienced in the hospital having my first child. I have not been suicidal through this process, which is rare because most of the midwives I know who've been through the coronial process end up suicidal at some point. One of the midwives has suicided. It is a miracle that more women haven't lost their lives through these processes. Um, you know, when, when you have a feminist critique and you understand that this is a, a tall poppy thing in Australia as well, so a woman who'd put her head above the parapet and spoken for other women was going to be a target. And I was going to be a target uh, from midwives who were pushing their own barrow that everybody must hire their brand of midwife and consent to their brand of midwifery. And the doctors who were gleeful because this proved that birthing at home was dangerous, even though there are six to seven stillbirths a day in Australia, the vast majority of which are overseen by obstetricians. So, you know, it was a, a great time of celebration for a lot of people who really wanted to see women not being able to make those kinds of decisions about our births, our bodies and our babies. How did your peers treat you? Because I know we briefly um, discussed it just before we went live, because that must have been equally, if not more, devastating. Yeah, the, the betrayal by my second midwife was profound and painful. And I know that, that um, since she was a very popular midwife in the home birth community in Sydney at that time, um, I know that that severely impacted on whether or not women were going to support me. Um, certainly when my baby was born, uh, women rallied around and we were cared for lovingly and beautifully. And then as the years passed, because there was a three-year gap between the stillbirth and the inquest, almost exactly three years, because legal processes often happen on the anniversaries of profound and difficult events for people. Um, I've seen this happen in a few different cases and it's truly awful and something that they should stop doing. Um, and, you know, I think 
women don't want to be tarred with the bad mother brush. And I know that the Department of Community Services, which is now FACS in New South Wales, uh, was noting if women appeared to know me. And so some women were very fearful and took off. Some women didn't want to be tarred with the, the bad mother, dangerous mother brush. They didn't want to um, offend their midwives. Women will bargain with their midwives like they bargain with obstetricians, like they bargain with God. If I'm an obedient girl, God won't take my baby. If I'm obedient and compliant, uh, my baby will live where hers didn't. So women wanted to separate themselves as much as possible from me. Um, I still have some close friends from before then, uh, but I have largely been alone since. Yeah, it's, um, and I guess because you've got that feminist lens, you can understand the nuances and often what ends up happening is because we are oppressed, we end up oppressing each other which then also it, it becomes so much more difficult because the collective voice is lost, which serves mm. the patriarchy, but no one else. Where do you see, or what do you think needs to happen to improve birth in Australia? I know, you know, there's mention of models of care and things like that, but you, and I, I know exactly um, what needs to happen. Um, is around giving birth back to women, basically. Well, women taking birth back. Like, why did we give it away? It's, it's one of the few physiological processes that solely happens in our bodies. Why did we give that away? Well, I, I think we are in the midst of some of the worst misogyny that we have ever faced. Uh, I think we have currently uh, a profound, alarming, perfect storm, uh, which has been pornography, which feeds violence against women in all forms, but also increases all of the really sick fetishes out there, uh, like the men who pretend to be pregnant, the men who want to breastfeed because it's a fetish and are now being allowed into women's groups like La Leche League. Um, you know, we are facing the kinds of porn-driven violence against women where women are horrifically raped, not just raped anymore, not that, please don't mistake me for that, thinking that's okay, but now it's horrific rape with utterly horrific injuries. We're seeing little girls, young teens, turning up in GP's offices with rectal injuries because before they've even kissed a boy, they're being told to give blowjobs and to enjoy and allow anal sex. We're living in a time of profound, dangerous misogyny. And so, as I say, it's, a, you know, birth is the distillation and reflection of women's lives in general. So until we can climb out from under all of those other woman hatreds, like being called turf because we know that biology is real. Like who blew the whistle and everybody suddenly started believing in that religion? It's like flat earthers are in charge all of a sudden. Yeah, so I think who aren't in this um, sphere because I actually had to Google it when I saw it on your page. <laughs> um, oh. Yeah, so turf is an acronym. Can you explain? Um, what the turf is, is, is as, as J.K. Rowling says, it's, it's just the latest um, brand of hatred, you know, which 
turf, it's all the same. So the story of turf, however, um, is an Australian feminist who uh, has often been part of writing really excellent stuff about birth, strangely enough, um, who decided that because she and her pals were supportive of the notion that trans identifying men are women, because they say so, so the mantra trans women are women, um, she decided that uh, she considered herself a radical feminist and uh, she wanted a term that differentiated between those who consider trans-identifying men to be women and those who consider trans-identifying men to be men, which is me. So she invented this acronym, TERF. Now, she's been interviewed a few different times about this, including um, in The Guardian some years ago. That's a super pro-gender ideology newspaper there. Um, and she doesn't seem to be bothered by the fact that TERF has become a slur. TERF is considered... Um, has been said by judges in the UK, for instance, to be a slur against women. It is a term usually used to silence us, shut up turf, found the turf. These are very common things on social media. And it usually goes along with violent threats towards women. Suck my dick, die in a fire, you know, suck my dick, said no woman ever, right? Um, if you look up turfisaslur.com, you will see turf used as it is used on social media, um, as it is sometimes used by academics in journals, frighteningly. So I don't use the B word, but it's like bitch on steroids. It is the worst possible thing that a woman can be is a turf. And punch a Nazi, punch a turf, same thing. There are trans-identifying male groups who um, pose online wearing T-shirts covered with red stuff they say is the blood of turfs. They're coming for us. They're going to rape us with knives. They're going to decapitate us. They're going to bash us with their carefully um, painted in trans colours baseball bats because they're super queer and super cool and killing women is just such a laugh, right? So uh, I think back to birth, we live in a time of profound misogyny where that's acceptable behaviour from men. It's acceptable in the Greens and the ALP in Australia for women's voices to be completely denied. So when, for example, women try to talk about changes to legislation which erase sex as a category and therefore erase women's spaces, women's shortlists, women's prisons, um, they completely ignore our voices or write us off as conservative or right-wing or religious. And, like, in and of itself, there's actually nothing wrong with being any of those things. But the vast majority of radical feminists or maternal feminists, we are none of those things. I'm a, a lifetime lefty. I just think sex is real. And I'm a woman in a female body who has experienced it. And I have read generations of feminist women talking about it. It's real. We used to believe it was real, the pay gap. It's real. So women, take back your birth. That's what we need to do. You own it. All you need is a vagina and a floor. And you can give birth at home in any way that you choose. Thanks for listening. 
If you'd like to work with me and some of my amazing short courses, I've got pre and postnatal yoga online. I've also got hypnobirthing classes for those in rural and remote locations. You can join via Zoom. And I've also got a new course called Mastering People Pleasing to Have an Amazing Birth. It's great for those who are perfectionist or reform perfectionist, that type A personality, and those who've been indoctrinated um, into that people-pleasing model. You can head to www.aliciastains.com.au for more info.